Well, today we kick off a brand new teaching series entitled uh, Jesus Is, and we're going to look at the Gospel of John this fall. And so if you are, if you're new to church or just new to the Bible and you don't really know where to start, uh, I, I would encourage you probably the best book to start without getting really frustrated. It, it's not Leviticus, surprise, but, but start in the gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. And, and I would encourage you to start in the gospel of John because we're going to be in John for the next, uh, for the next two months. And, and if RCC is your home church, you're convinced that Jesus is who he says he claimed to be. And so a series like this, you're like, I already know what they're going to talk about. I would encourage you, if you have a friend that isn't convinced, maybe they're curious about God. Maybe they Maybe they have. Maybe you have God conversations with your coworkers, with your spouse, boyfriend, girlfriend, kids, neighbors, to invite them over the next seven weeks to be part of a series where Jesus describes Himself with these seven different uh, statements. M- make no mistake about it. This probably isn't a surprise, but Jesus is the most loved and hated man in all of human history. Uh, you do not get to go to your grave in this life ignoring Jesus. And I would even take it further, ignoring religion. You have to come to terms with the question, the overall existential question, right? Which isn't how is the weather, but is there a God? And, and, and what is that God like? And is God good? Is he fair? Is he just? And, and by what by what terms is he fair and good and just by mine or by his? Everybody has an opinion about the man who claims to be God, whether, as the video said, you think he's a joke, a liar, annoying, or you think he's <clears throat> actually the son of God. I, I don't know if you know this, friends, but Jesus is kind of popular in our culture, right? Uh, Christians aren't, but Jesus is. And so <clears throat> Jesus has uh, reoccurring roles in The Simpsons. He's been in South Park. Uh, I don't know if you watch those shows. I don't know if you want to admit that in church or not, whatever. Uh, but Jesus has been in, in a lot of films, uh, high-grossing high films, The Passion of the Christ, The Da Vinci Code, Celebrities, love Jesus. Jesus is very fashionable. About 10, 15 years ago, there's a shirt making its rounds. All the celebrities were wearing it. Maybe you've seen it. Ashton Kutcher wore it. It says, Jesus uh, is my homeboy. And so Jesus is not only a great actor, uh, and, uh, not only is he great in pop culture, but he's very fashion forward. People love Jesus. Musicians love Jesus. Everyone from rapper Kanye West to rockers like The Killers, punk rockers like Green Day, American Idol contestants like Carrie Underwood. It's okay if you like her, no judgment here, uh, except for after service. Uh, even, even, even the biggest bands in the world like U2, they all sing, rap, scream, grunge about Jesus. Even John Lennon himself said that he and the Beatles were bigger than Jesus, and he was probably right. At, 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 don't strike me dead, God, but, but at the time, he was probably right. E- everybody has an opinion about Jesus, and Jesus isn't going away. Even, even if Christianity is a sham, Jesus gets you elected. Uh, Jesus helps you win uh, over people if you're a pastor. Jesus is great leverage point for a guilt trip and parenting. Am I right, parents? Come on now. I don't have kids, but I was one once, right? Jesus gets used for so many different things. And so we thought, 
let's let the man speak for himself, right? And I know that's a big task because I'm speaking on behalf of Jesus, so pray for me. But but what would it look like if we allowed Jesus to simply open his mouth and just define himself? It's interesting that in the book Vintage Jesus, Mark Driscoll talks about Jesus' humble beginnings. He says, at first glance, Jesus' resume is rather simple. He never traveled more than a few hundred miles from his home. Kind of interesting. A man who claims to be God never went 100 miles from his home. Never held a political office. He never wrote a book. Never got married. Never had sex. Never attended college. Never visited a big city. Never won a poker tournament. He died both homeless and poor. And yet Jesus is one of the most talked about historical figures. Even if you go to a secular college and take philosophy, you have to come to terms with who do you believe Jesus to be? Even if you believe in Nietzsche, who says God is dead, everybody has to make up their mind about this man who claims to be God. President Thomas Jefferson once said that Jesus did not mean to impose himself on mankind as a son of God. Miguel uh, Korbachev once said Jesus was the first socialist, the first to seek a better life for mankind. Uh, Martin Luther King Jr., uh, Dr. King said Jesus Christ <clears throat> was an extremist for love, for truth, and for goodness. If you had a piece of chalk, like the bumper video that you just saw, right, and you were staring at a blank wall that was painted with, with chalk paint, and the phrase said, Jesus is blank. What would be that one word that you would put in that line? Now, now, now here's the deal. Uh, that, that's a dangerous question. I grew up in the church. I've been a pastor for almost 15 years. Uh, Christians have a tendency to, to put things like Lord of Lords, King of Kings, like, you know, okay, which is not, not, not bad. But, but there are times, right, Christians, where you've been in small groups, the leader asked a question, and you really wanted to give a gut-level visceral response, but you were afraid you were going to be judged. No judgment here. If you, whether you claim to be a Jesus follower or not, whether you're convinced or curious about Jesus, if you were given a piece of chalk staring at a wall that says Jesus is blank, what would be the one word you would use to ascribe to Jesus? Think about that. Uh, In a few weeks, uh, out uh, in our worship center, outside of our worship center, you're going to have an opportunity to do that. And so we want to encourage you and your family, the friends that you're going to invite over the next seven weeks to experience uh, this series, that, that we're going to give you uh, in a few weeks, every week in the series, to write just one word of what, how you would define your relationship with Jesus. And here's why. Because the big idea for this whole series is simply this. We want to move Jesus off the shelf and into our lives. Even folks that have been following Jesus their whole life, even pastors, even staff people. We get so familiar with the Bible, so familiar with Jesus, it's easy to put them on a shelf and just do our own agenda. Is it not? Sure it is. Sure it is. And so we want this series where we take Jesus off the shelf. We're going to invite uh, and challenge you guys to stop thinking theoretically about Jesus, that Jesus is some religious leader uh, equal to all the other religious leaders and prophets, to maybe that Jesus wants to be a little more uh, than just a bobblehead on top of your shelf. And so today we're going to explore the first statement that Jesus uses to define himself. Now, in the first century, if you wanted proof 
for something that somebody said, you would ask for a miracle. And so miracles are important in the Gospels because that's how uh, you would prove things to the first century. And so before we get to the first statement, Jesus had just fed uh, over 5,000 people essentially with a happy meal. <laughs> they, they found this little boy. He had uh, three loaves of bread and two fish, or maybe I, I mixed that up. But Jesus fed the 5,000 right there. And uh, one of my favorite bands, the Ava Brothers, they have a lyric. I got to believe it's about this text because the lyric says, it's dangerous to draw a hungry crowd, right? So if, 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 if Jesus can feed 5,000 people with a happy meal, we need to follow him. So Jesus leaves that scene and he begins to cross the lake. He's in Capernaum, kind of his home base as an adult. And the, and the, the group says, we want more of that. See, in 2018, if Jesus claimed to be God, we're we're too sophisticated for that, right? Many of you get paid lots of money, sometimes six, seven figures, to figure out a problem that should go from A to B. The first century, they, weren't inter- they didn't think like that. They wanted a miracle. So if Jesus lived in 2018 and claimed to be God and all these other statements that we're going to explore together, we would say, we don't want a miracle. We want you to debate the leading atheist, whoever that is, at Boston University to see if you can win that debate. Same thing. Same. We're, we're wanting the same thing. We want proof. The first century wants a miracle to prove that. We would say, you need to uh, logically debate with whatever leading atheist exists at a college university to convince us intellectually that you are who you say you are. But the writers of the Bible uh, are a bit annoying. They're, they're, they're Hebrew, so they're far less interested in proving to you that God exists because they already believe that. They're far more interested in telling you what God is like. And so this crowd gets to Jesus, and they say, we want more of that. We want more bread. And Jesus says in John 6, 29, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. He said, wait a minute, we, we, need, to have a, we need to have a DTR talk, folks, here. I, I am not your church potluck dinner leader, all right? My, my mission in life, and, and, and it, is very, it is very important that not only Jesus, but we have a why to our existence. We know when we get up in the morning and our feet hit the ground, we know why we exist. And Jesus knew why he existed. His mission was to live a life that would lead us to believe, right? To believe that he is whoever he claimed to be. That in, in essence, the, the trajectory of his life, his body of work, is a miracle in and of itself. I mean, the fact that he was virgin born and then at the end, he rose from the dead. His, his life is a story of miracle. And he says to the crowd, I am, I, am not, I, I am not the church potluck coordinator. Do not follow me if all you want, right, is a Chick-fil-A sandwich. In my opinion, that would be enough to follow anybody. That, that's not the purpose of why I exist. And he goes on to say, verse 32, very truly I tell you. Now, words matter. When Jesus says, very truly I tell you, he's saying, Stop looking at your iPhones. This is very important to what I'm about to tell you. I'm about to explain, not religion, but I'm going to explain ultimate reality as I've created it. Very truly, I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. 
For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. This is the first recording in human history where church people were being demanding. Not that it happens even today. In verse 35, Jesus says, here it is, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, uh, you have seen me and you still do not believe me. I, I, I've, you, you asked me to do a miracle and, and I did it freely. <clears throat> and you still don't believe me. The fact that I'm standing in front of you would prove that God is for you, that he's come to rescue you, and you still do not believe me. And Jesus says the weirdest thing that you could say to a Jew, but to a first century Jew, I am the bread of life? What? You were born from Mary. What do you mean you knew what was going on back in Exodus? See, friends, what he's doing, he's referring to Exodus 16. And Moses records this. This is important, so hang with me, okay? The pats are about an hour away. Hang with me. The whole Israelite community, <clears throat> set from Elam, came to the desert of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai. Ten Commandments, let me Charlton Heston, that sort of thing. On the 15th day of the second month, after they'd come out of Egypt. So this is a group of people, if you're unfamiliar with uh, the, the narrative of Jesus' story, the, the Israelites have fled Egypt. They're, they, they, they're running from Pharaoh. And then Pharaoh decides, wait, no, I like free labor. Let's go get them. And so not only is Moses and Aaron leading thousands of people uh, from bondage to freedom, from uh, Egypt to Canaan, they also have to figure out strategically how to feed everybody. I mean, can you, I cannot even uh, ima uh, imagine being a city manager for Salem, trying to figure that out for 25, 35,000 people, let alone a nomadic people moving from bondage and slavery uh, to freedom. So in Jesus' first statement, he says, I'm the bread of life because I offer bread for anyone on the journey. Now, this is not, uh, this is not that big of a statement because Jesus uses practical everyday things all the time. He talked about his kingdom when he turned wine, uh, water into wine at weddings. And we talked about last weekend, one of the last things he did before he ascended into heaven is he made breakfast. Now, bread is not like, oh, you're the bread of life. You're common, great. Like, whether you're rich or poor, everybody has bread. There's not a country that has their mark on, on bread. Sure, you, you might think of our tortilla shell, maybe Mexico, a bagel. You might think of New York or, or, or Boston. But it, it's showing that Jesus is available to everybody. There's not a country that owns him. Uh, th there's not anyone in our world that has a mark on him and can tell him what to do, that Jesus makes himself available to anyone and everyone that would actually come and follow him. Max Lucado, a pastor and author, says this, what bread is to hunger, Jesus claims to be for the soul. Number two, Jesus offers bread to anyone living with questions. <laughs> I love the parallel here that John draws between John and Exodus. In John 6, 52, 
John records, Jews began to argue sharply. Isn't that a nice church way to say they were screaming at each other? The Jews began to argue sharply among themselves. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Why in the world would Jesus say, I'm the bread of life? You have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. Like, that is disgusting. That's stuff that you hear on Dateline on Friday night. Who does that stuff, right? And so they have questions, and they're angry at Jesus. And they don't know it yet, but if Jesus is who he claimed to be, they're angry at God himself. And in Exodus 16, verse 3, Moses records, the Israelites said to them, If we had only died by the Lord's hand in Egypt, there we sat around pots of meat and ate all of the food, and we had all that we wanted, but you've brought us out into the desert to starve the entire assembly to death. Do you see what's happening here? Both generations have questions about God's faithfulness. They have questions about God's provision. The Israelites in Exodus needed nourishment for the journey from captivity to freedom. And the Jews in the first century needed nourishment and sustenance from the oppressive Roman government. See, here's, here's I, think, I think here's a problem that we have when we think about faith and our walk with the Lord and the concept of time. We think <clears throat> that time is linear, which, which, which it is. I'm not, I'm not crazy. But, but we think that, you know, we were, we, we were born here. We became a Christian here. Uh, man, we, we had some really rough patches here, and we're just stuck here. And time is passing, right? We're getting older. Uh, you know, our kids are growing up. Uh, we're, we're getting out of high school. We're going into college, and we just feel stuck. But, friends, according to the Israelites— uh, our journey is not linear. It's more like a slinky. It's circular. Because the Israelites were in the wilderness, which is a sermon in all of itself, for over 40 years. You know a guy was leading that, right? Because it should have taken them a week and a half, right? right? No female leading that would, be, would want to be out in the wilderness for 40 years. She would have corrected that, right? Amen, ladies? It's okay. There you go. It's okay to say that. And so, the, for, the, for, the, for the Israelites, the faith journey should have been a week and a half, just a, just a straight shot. But what actually God did to them was he allowed them to walk in circles for 40 years. See, sometimes God disorients us. Okay? Sometimes God disorients us before he reorients us. Let me say that again. Because that, that statement, you will not believe if all you think is God is love and that's it. He just wants to, you know, hug everybody and write Hallmark cards. Sometimes God intentionally takes us to the wilderness to disorient us so that he can reorient us. And sometimes that means we feel like life is just, just a circle. We're not making any progress. Let me tell you something. That's okay. That's okay. Oftentimes, pastors, churches, religious leaders, blogs, because if it's online, it's got to be true, we, uh, we, we underserve our churches when we tell our churches uh, that all of your questions can be answered. That's not true. Everybody in life has a certain amount of questions 
that they want to ask. And depending on your, your childhood and, and adolescence and growing up, we all have different kinds of questions, right? And some of those questions, they're brutal. They're like, why, why am I infertile? Like, why can't I have a child? Why am I always in this financial bind? Like, why can't my kid just grow up and, and treat me well and respect me? These are good questions. But, but listen, friends, when you feel like you, you come to a sermon, you hear that Jesus is your bread of life, he's your portion, he's your provision, and you feel like your questions aren't being answered, Jesus often, often when he's disorienting us to reorienting us, is less interested in answering our questions and more interested in helping us live with our questions. Those are two different approaches to faith. Because if I, if I demand of God, right, which we do, you can. I mean, this first century Jews did. Give us more bread. We like this miracle stuff, right? Help us with our grocery bill. Feed us, right? We can demand things. of That happens, right? Don't say it doesn't because you're not, you're, you're not really being honest with yourself. We can demand uh, things of God. And when we do that and our questions are being answered, we tend to view our faith as, well, my faith should be linear, and if I'm not getting my questions answered, I'm out. God's a joke. God's a sham. It's just a religious crutch that people can lean on to get through life. But the Israelites in the Old Testament and Jesus in the New Testament, right, are far more interested in walking with us in our questions than answering all of them. I don't know why all of my questions aren't answered. I don't know why all of your questions aren't answered. But if they're not answered, is God still good? Is, is God still our bread of life? Is God still our provision? And what, makes, what, what we might feel like is an eternity in these circles Jesus is walking with us. Because the statement that should have gotten Jesus killed right then and there is this. I am the God that gave you manna. And I am the God that gave you manna, and I'm standing right in front of you flesh and bone. Jews do not believe in the Trinity. They, do, they, they believe in Genesis 1, where Moses <clears throat> excuse me, writes, Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is Echad. The Lord is one. They believe it to be singular. Actually, in the Hebrew, that is plural. And that's where one of the verses where we develop this theology of the Trinity, that God is Father, Son, and Spirit. So the fact that any one person would say in first century Judaism, I'm God, automatically should have gotten him killed. Right? Th this, is how, this is how intense this situation is. And, and yes, theologically, Jesus died for our sins. But also what was happening in that moment is that Jesus was a bad theologian because he went to his own people and said, I'm the God of the Old Testament. I've come to redeem and rescue you. And, and, and they, could not, they could not take Jesus off of their shelf and into their life and say, how is this even possible? And this is why the first century Jews were so just weirded out and confused by this idea that a man could claim to be God, that God would actually want to be that close to us uh, in, our, in our journey. Uh, pastor, spiritual formation writer Henry Nouwen um, 
man, I just came across this quote this week and I had to share it with you guys because I think it's so critical when we're in those seasons of circles, right? Well, we're always in seasons of circles and we have questions. I, lo- I just love the way he frames this. He says this, for most of my life, I've struggled to find God and to know God and to love God. I have tried hard to follow the guidelines of the spiritual life, the rules, right, which we talked about in our last series. Pray always, work for others, read the scriptures, avoid the many temptations to dissipate, excuse me, myself. I have failed many times, but always tried again, even when I was close to despair. Now notice the shift in his journey. Now I wonder whether I sufficiently realize that during all of this time, God has been trying to find me, to know me, and to love me. The question is not, how am I to find God, but how am I to let myself be found by him? The question is not, how am I to know God, but how am I to allow myself to be known by God? And finally, the question is not, how am I to love God, but how am I, man, this is amazing, how am I to allow myself to be loved by God? God is looking into the distance for, uh, for me, trying to find me, and longing to bring me home. Isn't that beautiful? I mean, just, just a different way to think about the seasons of our lives and, and really leaning in to this idea that Jesus is our bread of life, that Jesus actually is our provision. So Jesus offers bread to, to anyone uh, on the journey, to anyone on the journey with questions, and to anyone on the journey who wants to find true life. In John 6, 35, Jesus declares this, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never go thirsty. He goes on to say in verses 53 and 54, very truly I tell you, stop looking at your phones, pay attention. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Let, let, me, let me say that again, because we talked about that in greed, where Jesus defines quality of life is not about stuff, but our, lo- but our level of generosity. So Jesus is defining, this is important, friends, hang in there. Jesus is defining quality of life on his terms. And so let, let's be humble enough that if we, uh, or honest enough, that if we believe that Jesus is the God that created the world, that maybe he's onto something not to come across as the debate winner, but to give us more life and to more peace. He says, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. You Call yourself whatever you want. Call yourself a churchgoer, religious, and pick a denomination, doesn't matter. Ultimately, if you're not full body experiencing the nourishment of the God that loves you, you have no life in you. How's that for a Hallmark card? Pretty, it's pretty black and white. But, but, but Jesus is trying to be honest because he knows the things that we go after that we think will, will give us nourishment, we self-medicate on. And he, he ends with this, whoever drinks, eats my flesh, drinks my blood, has eternal life, I will raise him up on the very next day. It is amazing how relentless the God of the Bible is, that comes after us. And it's also equally amazing how many labels we put on ourselves to distance ourselves from real life in Christ. And labels 
I'm not talking about like, you know, skinny, fat, depressed, anxious. No, no, no. I'm talking about labels like churchgoer, right? Good person, amoral, right? Right? Everything's going well. These, there are good things that are not ultimate things that keep us from experiencing this life that Jesus <clears throat> is seemingly is inviting us into. The, the life that ultimately will give us true life. And friends, if, that, if that's you, let, let me encourage you. Jesus is not interested in helping you what you think is a well that's going to give you meaning only to find out it's just another broken cistern. Jesus is the bread of life, and he wants to come alongside of you. He wants you to take the plastic bobblehead Jesus off of your shelf and to consider what might my life look like if I, if I allow myself to spend time with the man that claim, claims to be the bread of life, the man that claims to be ultimate nourishment, the man that claims to be the God that can not only save me, but sustain my soul throughout this crazy experience that we're all in right now uh, called life. Friends, every weekend at RCC, we, uh, we take time to remember the sacrifice that Jesus made for, honestly, the world. He's not our little secret. We need to share him. And so we do that through a meal called communion. And, and we take a, a little wafer of bread that symbolizes that Jesus' body was crushed uh, when he experienced the worst form, I think, of capital punishment in all of human history. And, and, and we, we take the cup of juice symbolizing it's not his actual body, it's not his actual blood, but symbolizing the blood that was shed, right? And over and over again from the Old Testament and the New Testament, we read that without shed blood, there is no life. And Jesus even reiterates that. All of the Levitical laws and all the Levitical codes, and Jesus himself says, if blood is not shed on your behalf, you have no provision. And so we, we take this meal together to celebrate that there has been provision made for us. And there's provision and hope made for your friends who are, all, who are not here yet. So here's what we're going to do, friends, this weekend. I'm going to ask the, uh, the greeters, I'm going to ask the communion servers to come forward. You guys can come ahead right now and pass out the bread and the juice. Uh, just hold on to that. And when it's been uh, passed out, we're going to take it together uh, as a church. After uh, World War II was coming to a close, the uh, allied nations and army would, would gather together the, um, the abandoned children that were kind of, kind of on their own, honestly, and they put them together in a shelter and fed them and uh, gave them warm clothes, a place to lay their head, but, but they noticed that most of the children were not sleeping through the night, and so, so they asked the psychologist if, if, if they would talk to the children as to why they're not able to sleep through the night after <laughs> traumatic situation, right? Obviously, they're wrestling with PTSD for sure. Uh, and, and what the uh, psychologist said was, why don't you try and give them a piece of bread and ask the children when they go to sleep to simply hold on to it, maybe put it on their chest, not to eat it, and tell the children that one of the reasons why you're afraid to go to bed at night is you're not sure if you'll be fed the next day. And so they did that. They, they, they invited the children to hold on to the piece of bread, and, and they were assured, when you wake up tomorrow, 
the bread will be there for you to eat. Friends, as we take communion and eat the bread and drink the juice, may you always be reminded that there is provision for you today and tomorrow and the next week and the week after that. Let's eat together. Lord, in this moment, we, th we thank you for your provision, that you are for us more oftentimes than we are even for ourselves. And there is not a season of life, a circle of life, questions in life that would, that would ever lead you to walk away from us. Today we celebrate in this moment in communion that you are for us, that you're the God that provided manna from heaven, and you're the God that provides himself to us, not, not just for our salvation, which is primarily why we celebrate this meal, but also to care and nurture our soul every single day. God, thank you so much for that. Thank you so much for your provision. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.